You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lawrence Scott, and I'm interviewing Father Robert Sirico, author of The Economics of the Parables. Thank you so much for joining us today. Delighted to be with you. Thanks for having me. We are living in a time of unprecedented inflation. So why is your book an important read in this day and age? Well, uh, uh, essentially because I think Many people just don't understand what inflation is. Inflation is when you literally inflate the money supply, thereby diminishing the value of the money that previously existed. And the moral dimension of this, this is what's so instructive, especially with regard to what I'm trying to get to in this book on the parables and their economic dimensions, Uh, there's a moral consequence to inflationary policies. By inflating the money supply, what you do is most disadvantage the most vulnerable. So people on fixed incomes and the poor find that the money they have in their pockets is worth less. I suppose the most insidious thing about this is that it's taking people's money or the power of people's money away from them without ever coming to their door, without ever letting them know that it's happening. It just happens invisibly in in a person's uh, wallet uh, or bank account, as the case may be. And it's not a new thing either. This this goes back to, um, you know, uh, historic moments where monarchs would shave uh, little shreds of gold or silver off of the coinage and people would think they had the same coin, but a little bit was gone. And then those shreds would be put into new coins to enrich the ruling class. So it's um, it's a very insidious thing. What kind of dangers can one face if they believe that wealth will keep them out of heaven? Well, it's not so much wealth that keeps one out of heaven, but anything... Uh, or any circumstance whereby you have a disordered desire. So it could be wealth in the sense that wealth is obvious and comfortable and enjoyable. But it can be other things, too. Um, you know, lust can, can do the same thing. Um, pride can do the same thing. Um, I think, you know, if, if we were to look at the seven deadly sins, uh, and I, I mentioned this in the, the Economics of the Parables, what we need to look at is the balance. For instance, it's not money that's the sin, but greed. It's not sex that's the sin, but lust. It's not success that's the sin, but pride. It's not admiration, but envy. It's not anger, but it's wrath. And it's not leisure, it's sloth. It's the acquiescence of our desires to things that are not of God, that are not balanced, that do not lead us to a higher truth. So if we just see wealth as such, as sinful, then we are going to shy away from it rather than make use of it as a tool to accomplish higher mission, higher mission, higher aim. In your book, you link wealth and the need for responsibility closely together. What are some things Christians can do to make sure they are being held responsible in relation to their wealth? 
Well, first and foremost, of course, is going to be how you produce the wealth. I mean, you you can get wealth. This is why, in in one sense, it's it's neutral. You can get wealth by stealing from other people, uh, or you can get wealth by serving other people. That is, when you produce a product that other people say, you know, I I need this product to make my life easier, to make my family's life easier. Um, the first question I think any moral person needs to ask is, how am I acquiring wealth? And the wealth or the profit is the signal that you have achieved the end that you set out. If the method of doing that is immoral in the first place, then of course the end result, the profit, is going to be immoral as well. Um, I think beyond that, we have to think about uh, all of the virtues and obligations that are inherent in the production of wealth. That is, uh, when I'm producing something, uh, is it good quality? Is it a, uh, does it really serve the person? Am I, and uh, in selling it to a person, am I respecting the person I'm selling it to? Or what about all of the collaborators with me in the process of that production? Am I paying them? Uh, a wage that they themselves determine is acceptable and livable, that they can live uh, on that wage. Um, all of these factors go into what we call the economy, which is simply the allocation of scarce resources. And um, every investment we make as a human being involves some level of moral decision-making because it involves our reaction or our interactions, rather, with other people. Why do so many people misinterpret the parables of the Bible that allude to wealth? Is it because they want an excuse to be greedy or they'd like to remain lazy? Or do you think it's a true misinterpretation on their part? Well, I think there are two kinds of misinterpretations when, when we come to what the scriptures, and in my case with this book, in particular the, the parables, two ways in which we can approach this that are erroneous. Um, the first is to see everything that the Scripture says about wealth as indicating that wealth itself is immoral, or seeing everything that the Scriptures talk about with regard to economics is socialistic or state-centered. A classic example of that is when people read the parable of the Good Samaritan, this man who helps uh, a man he finds in in a desperate situation. People read that and say, well, here's the justification for the welfare state. And um, I see it very differently. And I think the problem is whether we're going to read into the scriptures our own presupposition so that in, in an age where the state is dominant or uh, people's political preferences uh, prefer to have the state as the first actor when there's a human need, then a person reading that parable is going to see anyone who's helping another person as the action of a governmental agency. Whereas if you're really reading the scripture itself, the whole lesson of it is that this is a personal engagement of a man who sees another man in a desperate situation and is willing to involve himself physically uh, even with the transference of the man to uh, a place of refuge, he uses his beast, <laughs> you know, his donkey or horse. Uh, he pays for the man's well-being and will even obligate himself to pay 
on his return visit, if there's any other uh, necessity that the man has required, all of this is personal engagement. It's moral engagement. Uh, and this is what I think is, is lacking in the, um, the kind of social justice reading of it. The other erroneous reading of it is the, what was called the prosperity gospel reading of it that says that anything, any wealth that I have is an indication that God has blessed me. So it's the canonization of the wealthy uh, and the damnation of the poor because the poor haven't achieved what they've gotten because they're lazy or some stereotype associated with that. On the other hand, the social justice or the liberation theology approach to it says that anyone who is wealthy is sinful and we canonize the poor regardless of why they're poor. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Lauren Scott interviewing Robert Sirico, author of The Economics of the Parables. One of the most well-known parables is the parable of the talents. What are the economic presuppositions of this parable? Well, you're right. I mean, that's uh, probably the first one that people come to and see it because it's so obvious. By the way, the word talent that we use today, meaning a gift that we have, comes from this parable. Uh, The talent that is used there, the word talent, is a monetary unit. And uh, I think that's the first thing to think about. But what it's telling us is that uh, the story of this owner who invests or entrusts his money to three servants in the parable that I use is a similar parable that's a little little different, but it's the same basic message. Uh, and two of them double the money, the investment. It doesn't say how they do it, but we're left to imagine that it's some kind of trade, some kind of entrepreneurship, some kind of creativity. The third one is where we really see, uh, on an economic level, certain presuppositions that are erroneous. Uh, so the third one uh, receives one talent and buries it. So what's interesting is that he doesn't lose the initial investment. He doesn't diminish the initial investment. He just hides it and then turns it back over to the master. And here's where we see the erroneous thinking on the part of this man, because when the the master comes and says, well, wh- what did you do? Why didn't you lend my money to the bankers? At least you would have had a little profit there. He says, I knew that you were a cruel man and I was afraid. So the first thing was fear. And people who have to engage in a market, um, especially entrepreneurs, invest their money. A lot of people don't understand that entrepreneurs uh, risk a great deal. And there's a fear that's involved. But the question is whether it's going to paralyze you. I'm sure the other uh, servants in this passage were a little afraid because they were risking even higher amounts than the first man. And yet they overcame their fear by investing it. This man is paralyzed by his fear. That's the first thing. The second thing is his perception of his benefactor. The, the, the owner of the vineyard uh, or the owner gives him, gives him the money and says, uh, you know, be fruitful with it. And he says, I saw you as someone who gathers where you have not scattered and reaps where you have not sown. In other words, I see you 
the philanthropist or the investor as a um, exploiter. And isn't that exactly the attitude that Marx has toward a free economy, toward entrepreneurs? Uh, they basically say that you have uh, gathered what you have not scattered. You, you, every money, every dollar you make in a free market, in a free exchange system is exploitative. It's unjust. And that's the attitude of this man toward his benefactor. So I think there are a lot of economic dimensions that, that are uh, at play there, namely to really understand that the gifts that we are entrusted with, the talents we receive, are our responsibility to act. What, what I think would be um, uh, an interesting exercise is to imagine this owner coming back, this man who left the money, coming back and finding that the, the guys had lost the investment, honestly lost it. They, they, they tried and they failed. What his attitude might have been. It'd be an interesting meditation and exercise. My hunch is that this master, given uh, what you can see of him in this gospel, would have said, okay, at least you risked, and there's a lesson in risking. You know, not, every, not every failure in a market is a moral failure. The moral failure is to misconceive the benefactor, to be afraid and to see profit-making as uh, axiomatically exploitative. How can capitalism further glorify the heavenly kingdom? Well, first of all, the, the term capitalism is problematic in, in my book because it's a, it's a term that's, you know... Um, used by Marxists to describe one dimension of a market economy, the capital dimension. That's the antagonism that Marxists in particular, who have the most defined understanding of the socialist idea, uh, they see capital, uh, well, let's, let's clarify first, capital uh, is a form of private property, but it's, it's the net. The other form of private property is the fish. <laughs> so the net is the means by which you obtain the fish. What the socialists hated was the capital. So this is my problem with the word capitalism, uh, and particularly Marx's uh, criticism, because it sees the means of production uh, as exploitative. Uh, what I think uh, your question implies is how can we see uh, a creative uh, trusting, risking investment, and the profits that result from that uh, as illustrating the kingdom of God. And this is precisely oh, what many of the parables exemplify for us, how we need to risk, how we need to be willing to surrender uh, what we have for something that is greater. Uh, in the pearl of great price, Jesus describes a man who wants to obtain this luxury item and has no utility other than its beauty. And he's willing to sell everything that he has in order to obtain that. And that's the call to each one of us, to obtain the kingdom of heaven by relinquishing all other priorities in relation to that one priority to attain the kingdom of heaven. And we can go through each of the parables and see a similar lesson being taught. In Chapter 5, you talk about uncertainty of the future and how that is one of the reasons why making profit is so difficult. 
one must accept uncertainty of the future and kind of realize they're not in control in order to remain humble. So my question is, how can we balance having a particular level of uncertain, but also a level of confidence in order to best thrive economically? Well, I, th- I think that the secret to this is to really love the truth. This is the definition, by the way, of humility. Humility isn't being obsequious. Humility is loving the truth above everything else. And so while we are not infallible uh, in our um, apprehension of the world, uh, we can do our due diligence. And, and the economic lesson here is somebody has to do their due diligence, make sure that you, you know to the best of your ability what the market will bear and what the investment could be. Uh, and it really is a lesson. Uh, the, the fact that we don't know uh, the future, that we don't know all of the factors, is what makes profits so rare. Uh, because if we knew the future, we'd all be rich, right? You know, if I, I knew tomorrow what the stock market was going to look like, I'd invest in all the appropriate stocks today. Uh, and I think this lesson of knowledge, the uh, imperfection of our knowledge, calls us to be dependent upon those who can inform us. It, it calls us to be humble in, in that regard. The, you know, the price, the pricing system, a lot of people don't understand that prices aren't made up by the producers. Prices are a response to the cues, to the messages, to the information that comes to us from other people who are producing goods and transferring them and developing them. All of the costs of the factors of production come into play, and they result in the knowledge that the entrepreneur has to form prices. And a price doesn't actually exist until a person purchases the good. So you could you can put a price tag on a book, but that doesn't mean the book's going to be worth it because if, if people don't want it, if it's not serving their need, they're not going to buy it. And in a few months, your book will be on the uh, <laughs> the overstock rack, and it'll sell for a dollar rather than thirty dollars. So uh, I, I think that parable is is very instructive on a lot of different levels. And of course, again, the, these parables are not to teach us economic lessons; they're to teach us something about the kingdom of God through what we know about our life on earth. And so, uh, what we don't know. Uh, about our future is what can inspire us to prepare ourselves for that eternal future. Another parable you discuss is the house built on the rock. And I believe the most common interpretation of this parable um, is that we have Jesus as our foundation. That's how we will have the happiest life, which is a correct interpretation. But you also talk about how there is more to that parable um, in an economic sense. So what do you have to say there? Again, you know, this is the, the, the parables are giving us real material examples of things with which we are familiar to teach us how to think about the kingdom of God. So a person who's building a house has to lay out um, all of the, the knowledge that they have about the house. And, and this particular one contrasts the man who builds the house on a rock, and when the storms come, the foundation holds. But there's another uh, man who builds on sand, 
And both of those houses might have looked as, as attractive as the other. They might have been equivalent in aesthetic uh, beauty and convenience or whatever goes into making a house desirable. But the foundation on which it stood is really what's going to tell what the durability of it is. And all of that, I'm just describing right now in economic language, you can just see how all of that applies to our discernment of the truth, of, of what holds firm, what is anchored in reality. Uh, faith in Jesus Christ gives us, rather than the shifting sands of personal opinion or, or feelings or desires, uh, unless those things are predicated on something that's true. Another way of putting this, it's a more abstract way of describing it, but, or a philosophical way of describing it, but our freedom has to be oriented to the truth. The truth has to form the foundation of everything. The truth is our friend. Somebody, I had, There was a poster once I, I saw, and it said, uh, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. And I think that's the reality of our lives, that um, we, many people spend their whole life resisting the truth, the solid foundation, because it's too hard. But what's the alternative? The lie is the sand, and it will not withstand the turbulence that we will encounter in life. All right. Thank you so much. That's actually all the questions I have for you today, but I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. I'm delighted to have been with you. Thank you very much. God bless. Our guest has been Father Robert Sirico, author of The Economics of the Parables. I'm Lauren Scott, and you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. (laughs) 